0: Building in Perth, everything you wish you knew in five informative episodes, available on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Welcome back. This is episode three of the Building in Perth podcast. I really hope that you have taken a lot of value out of everything we have gone through in the previous two episodes. I guess so far, what we've gone through is the finance side of things, choosing your builder and building consultant, and finding your land as well and figuring out how to settle on that land. When we spoke to Chantel from old field settlements. What we'll be going into today is more to do with the nitty gritty of the little parts that go into the home itself, what I like to call the ingredients. It's really important to understand all of those little pieces that make up the whole. So that's things like the taps and the cabinets and the windows and uh, the floor coverings and everything like that. Now, when I go through all of these items and it's certainly not going to be everything, it's just gonna be the bulk of the, the major ones. It's not gonna be brand specific. I've really tried to keep the podcast as a whole, actually fairly brand uh, agnostic. I really wanna let you make your own decisions and I'm just giving you the right information so you can ask the right questions along the way to make those educated decisions. So uh, before I get into the individual bits and pieces, the section in the book is prefaced by uh, something I've got in there called chef versus cook. And it was a little analogy that I came up with uh, that compares building a home to making a dish. So let's call that spaghetti bolognese as an example. Now, in order to make a spaghetti bolognese, we need a recipe. So a list of things that go into that spaghetti bolognese, right? Now, it's kind of like a specification for a home. It's a list of things that go into the home. Now, one of the key things that is important about making that spaghetti bolognese is going to be the person that puts that spaghetti bolognese together. And this is part that people often forget when they're shopping for a home. So let's say for example, I'm one of the chefs and I can go, uh, let's just say hypothetically, I go down to a subpar grocer that doesn't have great uh, fresh produce, right? And I go and buy, uh, you know, my mints and my vegetables and tomatoes and all that sort of thing to make my spaghetti bolognese. Gordon Ramsay, our other chef, he goes down to uh, the boat shed in Cottesloe, spends a thousand bucks on a basket of groceries. I guess that's probably how much things uh, cost down there. Now the produce down there is absolutely unbelievable. Okay. So when he goes and make his spaghetti bolognese and I go and make mine, they're going to be very, very different end results. And they're going to taste completely different because he's got ingredients that are vastly better than mine and his skill set is putting those together. However, I've saved a little bit of money on my spaghetti bolognese, so I can say, hey, how would you like a free bottle of wine with your, your spaghetti bolognese, right? And all of a sudden it's looking like I've got a bit of a better deal than Gordon does, but at the end of the day, what matters is what that spaghetti bolognese tastes like. It doesn't matter what that bottle of wine tastes like, right? And that's really, really uh, applicable to building a home. It's, it's kind of exactly the same type of thing. People always discount the fact that the people that make home have just as much of an influence as all of those little ingredients that go into it as well. So that's something I really, really just wanted to cover off because it is such a critical part that people often seem to just dismiss altogether or just not give enough thought. So let's dive into, I guess, um, a little bit more about the individual pieces. I'm just sort of going to say these with a heading, like I'm going to start with LED downlights as an example and just move through them just with a few brief comments. Uh, We are going to be talking to uh, Jamie from Intelligent Home a little bit later on. So I don't sort of want this to, to drag on too much. Certainly if you've got any other questions about any of these little bits and pieces, feel free to give me a shout on Facebook or Instagram at uh, buildwithdeso. So we are going to start with uh, LED down And this is one that I was quite familiar with from my time when I was working at Intelligent Home. Now, um, figure out whether you're going to get LED lights included with your Building contract. Okay. So it doesn't matter whether it says included or they're costed in, just figure out whether you're going to get them uh, as part of that final price that you're paying. Uh, Are you going to get them everywhere? Are there enough? So there's actually calculators that figure out how many lights you need per room based on the type of light fitting and its light output and things like that. So please never ever settle for a builder that puts one down light in a bedroom uh, because chances are that is not. Uh, sufficient to light that room, uh, mathematically speaking, okay? And there are calculators online where you can go and figure that out uh, quite easily. Ask what brand the light fittings are. This makes a big difference uh, in terms of warranty, performance of the light fitting and things like that. Now, LEDs, generally speaking, uh, should have at the least about a 50,000 hour lifespan, which is a really, really long time, pretty much for the, well, you call it for the life of the home, just about, okay? Now, there are a lot of cheap LED light fittings that come in uh, from China. In fact, well, to be perfectly honest, most of the light fittings uh, and LEDs are made in China, right? But uh, they're not all the same, okay? So there are very cheap ones that come in and they do have a lot of problems with uh, turning off by themselves, flickering, and all sorts of weird and wonderful issues. They're definitely not all the same. So do get to the bottom of that. Find out whether, the color temperature is switchable, okay? So that is kind of the uh, the color of the light. So you'll notice that um, some lights have almost like a, a whitish, bluish tinge. Some have almost like a neutral sort of color, I guess you would call it, and some are more of that golden color. Okay, now that, that is uh, the color temperature it's referred to uh, in terms of Kelvin. So the lower the number, the warmer or more orange that light is, the higher the number, the whiter that light is. Now a key thing here as well is don't ever, 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 and I see this even in in our own display homes to be perfectly honest, you don't mix color temperatures of light because it looks terrible. So the reason that quite often we would have it in our our display homes as an example is, they're on display during the day. So it makes sense to have the down lights as a daylight color temperature. Um, But then quite often what you'll see is things like uh, Edison bulbs, so you know, they're the funky almost, uh, with let's call it steampunky sort of bulb where you can see the, the orange glowing filaments kind of cool and they were really popular for a while. Anyway, you don't wanna mix those two color temperatures cause it just sort of looks a little bit uh, mismatched. Suss out whether you can get different colored bezels around the LEDs as well. My advice for the most part is just keep them white. But if you do want to get something that is a little bit funkier and a bit more striking, black and stainless can look good but be very, very conscious of how you line up everything on your ceiling because eyes will be drawn to the ceiling. It can look awesome. And I've seen it done many times in very high-end homes, but there's been a lot of thought going into exactly how everything is going to look on the ceiling. So that goes for lights, air convents, vents, and everything like that. Everything's got to line up and look sharp. Otherwise it's gonna look uh, like a complete mess. All right, windows and sliding doors. So there's actually massive differences between different brands uh, and look i'm going to be talking specifically to more project builds here so let's say that 170 180 to 300,000 dollars sort of price point and the types of window frames that are likely to go uh, into those homes um, when you do go through a display home physically go up to the frames and feel if you can bend them rattle them and have a good feel of them because they're not all the same, and you can feel the difference in those very, very quickly. Um, more more often than not, people go through display homes and they don't really touch things because they don't think they're allowed to touch, but just remember that your home is something that you are gonna touch and feel every day, so you guess, so by all means, take that liberty and open and close things and uh, feel things and pull things and and do all of that because it's not something you just take pictures of at the end of the day. So yeah, do dive into that with the window specifically because there is a significant difference between the brands that are likely to be supplied to you. While we're on windows and sliding doors, I just wanna segue very briefly into double glazing. So I know that that is a bit of a word on everyone's lips at the moment. Not all double glazing is the same. I did do a bit of a video on this on Instagram and it's a little bit easier to explain if you can actually see me, but I'm gonna do my best to explain this by audio anyway, okay? So what double glazing is, it's a window frame and then you've basically got your, what we call your float of glass, or normally you would have a piece of glass, so it might be a four mil piece of glass as an example. With double glazing, that piece is basically its own sort of, let's call it a little frame in itself if you like, and it's two pieces of glass that are separated by a space. Now one of the things that is critical with double glazing about that space is that it's an absolute vacuum. That's a must, okay? Sound does not travel through a vacuum. As an example, if we were to scream at the top of our lungs in space, you wouldn't hear a thing because sound needs air basically to propagate, if that makes sense. So that's what makes double glazing effective. You need that vacuum. Now that vacuum can be just air if double glazing, double glazing is being cheaply done. It can also be different gases, the most common one being argon. The benefit of argon is that that also has thermal benefits whereas the just the airspace is more probably just to do with noise. Um, the other co- thing that comes into play with double glazing, and again, I'll talk to a project level build here. So that 170, 180 price point up to about 300 is that the frames are not gonna be acoustically or thermally broken what that means is is that double piece of glass that i was talking about that can be have its vacuum between it and sound wouldn't theoretically travel through that but sound is going to go through everywhere else right so the frames have to be absolutely airtight they need to be um yeah thermally acoustically broken uh inside the uh, when they're fitted into the brickwork and things like that for it to be really really effective so look the crux of it is is that not all double glazing Uh, is the same. So really do your research on it and ask the right questions and get very educated on it before making a decision that it is something that you need in your build. And if you do need it, are you going to get a quality double glazing product? Because it's definitely not all like for like. And generally speaking, to do it well, it is extremely expensive. And to be perfectly honest, it's probably not even that applicable for our environment here. We're pretty spoilt for weather. High ceilings, so even though it's not a product like a tap or a cabinet, do ask your builder and building consultant, uh, you know, what the ceiling heights are in the home through various areas, through the whole house, through the living areas. Do you have options to raise ceilings and things like that? It does make a bit of a difference to how the home feels as a whole, particularly in smaller homes or narrow lot homes. Sometimes in the bigger, wider homes, you can get away with something a little bit lower. One of the main things to consider as well is when a builder raises the ceilings in the home, and I know that people listening on can't see this, but I'm kind of going to uh, show people that are watching, is that the window heights are also raised as well. So you don't end up with this sort of, you know, 300 mil piece of brickwork above the windows. It looks absolutely ridiculous. You really need to make sure that all your window heights are raised as well when you raise the ceilings. Um, A lot of the time, Some builders anyway, they will charge you quite a bit more to raise those windows. So just make sure you do ask that question. Cabinet work. So I will try and move this through this one as quickly as I can, but it is a very, very uh, important one and a big component of the home. So little things like seeing if you get soft closing hinges throughout the home uh, rather than just in the kitchen. So often read read your builder's spec sheet and make sure it says throughout and not soft closing hinges to kitchen or something like that. All of the little ways things are worded are very, very important when you're reading through those spec sheets and your contract, which I'll get to in the uh, the next episode. Cabinet work as a whole makes the home, in my opinion, like I, I think that it's a place where you can spend extra money and it goes a long way to making that home feel custom or high end. After working in all of those very, very fancy homes for a very long time. One of the the commonalities that all of those had was that they all had a lot of built-in cabinet work. Granted, completely different styles of homes to what we're talking about, but even if you've got a few grand extra up your sleeve, it's a good place to spend it uh, on on the cabinet work. Now, when I'm talking about the cabinet work and spending money on it to get a good result as well, having that flexibility to customize it is also really, really important. Now, There are some builders in Perth that are importing a lot of their cabinet work from overseas in a flat pack form, kind of like a IKEA kitchen for lack of a a better term, which is all well and good. I mean, most of the things sitting on the table in front of me at the moment and recording what you're hearing, they're all out of China. I think it's a very ignorant statement to say that things in China aren't of quality anymore. I think that ship sailed a long time ago. They're the most capable manufacturing nation in the world but what you're not getting when you get something flat packed in is you're not getting that flexibility with design of things like the kitchen maybe flexibility with colors that then impacts other things like what color you can choose for your floor and things like that so there is tremendous benefit to having custom built cabinetry that's done locally because it is going to give you a lot more flexibility with how the home looks at the end of the day stone bench tops so most Uh, Spec sheets these days are going to say stone bench tops in some capacity. If you're dealing with a builder that is, I guess, what I'd call entry level and sort of just getting you into your very, very first uh, home, sometimes that stone bench top might only be to somewhere like the kitchen. Uh, And it's important, again, to read through the spec sheet to understand that because it's unusual for a builder to show anything but stone in a Uh, display home. Uh, There are varying levels of stone as well and different brands do perform differently despite what uh, you might be told. There is absolutely a difference in the brands of stone and the quality in terms of things like um, cracking and things like that over time and also staining and things like that. Plumbing fixtures. This is one I'm pretty passionate about simply for the fact that these ones, as I put it in the book, involve water, okay? So plumbing fixtures, they move, they've got water running through them, and at some point in time in the future, they will fail, irrespective of what brand you choose. It's just a case of when, and then it becomes a case of, okay, can I get parts for that plumbing fitting? Now, what we're sort of tending to see a little bit more, kind of like with the cabinet work, uh, is a trend to import products from overseas and as I said before it's not necessarily a bad thing but understanding that supply chain and making sure you can get spare parts in 10 years time that becomes a problem because that's when those parts and things will be needed you don't want to uh you know be going through your home completely ripping things out and replacing them because you can't get like for like uh replacements or parts anymore Um, Actually, I've got a a little quote here at the bottom of the page that I think I I will read pretty much word for word because I think it was a kind of good way to put it. But uh, it says here, beware of sales lingo like European inspired fixtures. This in in no uncertain terms says we have replicated something expensive on the cheap and we want to put it into your home. Think about when something is bacon flavoured. It's nothing like real bacon. And that is uh, very much true for the plumbing fittings. Door hardware, so we're talking about door handles, right? Now, um, most builders tend to use the same sort of brands for their door handles and things like that. What it more becomes a case of is what door handles you're getting in your contract and what ones you can choose from, okay? So in display homes, you're always gonna have nice looking door handles and things. What might be written into a contract and again, always Google these to try and find out what ones you are getting. A lot of the time it's gonna be the plain, sort of round, boring old doorknob, okay? So make sure that you do do that little bit of digging and just see what options you've got available and if there's any cost implications there. Wet area glazing, so this is things like shower screens and, and mirrors and that sort of thing. So this might seem like an obvious one, but just make sure you're getting actual glass and not plexiglass or some sort of like perspexy type thing. Some builders do tend to use that. Uh, Also see if you're getting like a semi-frameless shower, whether it's gonna have a frame around the door. Again, quite often what's shown in a display versus what you're actually getting are going to be uh, two quite different things. Also see, and this is not glazing, but see if the showers are hobless as an example. So that's where the glass goes all, all the way to the ground and you don't have that ugly tile to step over. One little tip I would like to say here, and this comes down to cost and whether you have got the budget, right? Is if you're gonna do something like black tapware in your bathroom and throughout the rest of the home, what you can request is what they call iron-free glass. Now, iron-free glass is crystal clear. So with most glass, it's got that blue green sort of slight tinge to it. When you pay for iron-free glass, it's crystal clear. Right Now if you're doing that ultra contemporary sort of uh, look in your home with black tapware, maybe some concrete sort of look tiles and that sort of thing, introducing that little bit of a blue green tinge, it's not ideal, it's fine, but if you do have the extra, it might cost an extra thousand bucks or something like that to make it iron free, then it's money worth spending to really execute that look well. National Broadband Network. So uh, it's not just the things that you can touch and see in the home that are important. It's the stuff that you you can't see as well. So National Broadband Network compliance is really important. That's pretty much what everyone's going to be connecting to these days. But there are other variants of fibre technology underground in different estates as well. If you take, I think, uh, a lot of Ellenbrook as an example uses uh, something that was called Telstra Velocity. It might be called Telstra Fibre now, but that delivered TV over fibre underground as an example. Just make sure your builders completely across what technology is underground in the estate you're building in. Generally speaking, uh, most builders will use a separate contractor like Intelligent Home, and we'll speak to Jamie from Intelligent Home uh, shortly uh, to identify what those services are and to make sure the house is cabled correctly because there are different uh, cabling standards for the different uh, fibre platforms that are underground. Robes and storage. Now, some of this stuff might seem like really obvious things. It might seem like really, yeah, real obvious sort of stuff. But it's absolutely, it absolutely baffles me that some of these things aren't included by some builders at, at some points in time. So just look at your plan, look at your spec, and make sure that they are. So the doors come on the robes. Sounds weird, but yes, doors sometimes don't come on robes with some builders. The shelves come in there again. Sometimes they just leave an empty recess, uh, and this is just kind of places. Builders can pinch pennies to try to keep that contract price down uh, up front. Uh, Does it come with a hanging rail? Uh, Don't, yeah, just don't assume that any of those things are going to be there. Just double check and make sure they are. Another point that I've sort of made in this section in the book is consider how necessary walk-in spaces are as a whole. So not necessarily just robes, things like walk-in linens, walk-in pantries. I, I have clients all the time and one of the things they always ask for are things like walk-in pantries and things like that right which is really really common but is it really the best use of space in the home when you might be talking about a 200 square meter house do you need to be standing in the pantry to choose your cereal or could that space that you're standing in be better used as i don't know a study nook or maybe some extra space in the kitchen right um and this kind of ties into spending extra money on cabinet work to a degree as well one of the reasons that Uh, walking spaces are used in a project build quite often is that cabinet work is pretty expensive. So the walking space can actually be a little bit cheaper, but maybe not best use of space. So just something to think about anyway. Uh, Paints and render. So generally speaking, uh, the front of the home would be rendered in some cases, uh, say if you're on a corner block or something, you might render all of the side. And depending on what builder you're building with and if you're creeping up to sort of that 300 mark, maybe a little bit over, you might render the whole home, but just make sure that you know what brands of paint are going to be used on that render. Uh, That's a very, very critical one, just so you can potentially paint match that later. There are some like really, there is some really sort of cheap stuff that comes in from overseas. It's like no name brands that will give you a color, but then trying to match it later on is a little bit tricky. I know they do have like, Paint matching machines and things like that but look it's better to stick with your rep, rep, reputable brands like your uh your waddles and your dual and, and that sort of stuff it's um yeah just a, a little bit safer aircon so uh one of the first things people ask is is aircon included and it really depends on the builder more often than not it's going to be included in the home or if not as part of some sort of promotion it's kind of more of an expectation these days when people build a home uh the next thing to cover off would definitely be is it reverse cycle so there are and again this is probably more some of the cheaper more entry-level builders that will uh say that they've got ducted air conditioning but they might be using an evaporative system which is that one with the big ugly thing on the roof where you've got to leave your windows a little bit open now those systems are significantly more expensive but it does allow those builders to advertise ducted air conditioning. So just make sure that word reverse cycle is in there. That means you can heat and cool. It doesn't just cool. Um, the evaporative systems are pretty unusual uh, here. It's a little bit more common, uh, I think over in Queensland and, and places like that where it's a little bit more tropical, I think from memory. Uh, have a look and see if there's any upgrade paths with your aircon to see whether you can control airflow to uh, individual rooms or whether you can use an app to access the aircon con offsite. Most air cons do have an upgrade path like that now. And it's usually a case of about a thousand bucks or something like that to upgrade to it. I know there are various flavors uh, of that on the market. Um, I only, I'm only familiar with a couple of them, but I know that most builders do offer it. So do ask that question. Find out who your builders preferred supplier and installer are. all aircon installations are the same. It's very important to have things like all of the ducts strung up in the roof. So they're not just laid over the top of the insulation. because those pipes, the big silver ones sort of collapse uh, over time and the system becomes uh, less efficient and basically cost you more money. It probably has an impact on uh, the longevity of the system I would think as well. So those big silver pipes can actually be suspended uh, up in the roof space, which mitigates that um, those pipes collapsing. That's uh, a pretty important one. Also ask about who manufactures all of the parts up in the roof. Um, so there is one company that I will make mention of here because I did have some dealings with them back when I was at Intelligent Home and I, I was absolutely floored by how good this company was with their product and their research and development and things and that's Advantage Air. Um, so they're not a, an installer, they actually supply and manufacture air conditioning components. But uh, my experience with them when I, when I was there d- dealing with them was just absolutely uh, phenomenal. So uh, that is that is one out of all of these sections where I will actually name someone um, there. They they were just really, really great to deal with. So, all, and the reason I mentioned them as well is that all of the parts up in the roof make a big difference. It's not just a case of, you know, uh, ha- it's not just a case of having say a Panasonic or a Dakin air conditioning unit outside all of that stuff up in the roof makes a big difference as to how everything operates as well and things like the apps and that. All right, floor coverings. So I'm just gonna sort of go through the common types here, okay? So uh, a lot of the time the builders won't include the floors uh, in their base house pricing. Now that goes for just about all builders that I've seen. Uh, I don't know why they do it that way. It's kind of like selling a car without wheels, in my opinion. Uh, Certainly, I know that with my clients, I always just price the house with floors in it, irrespective of what the the advertised price of the house might be, because it's kind of just a a pretty reasonable expectation, I would have thought. Um, But let's just go through the different types, okay? So you've got tiles. Now, the next question people normally ask is, porcelain versus ceramic, okay? Now, one of the biggest misconceptions there is that, oh, one of them has the color running all the way through the tile. So if I chip the tile, you're not gonna see it. That's uh, not true, okay? So it's just a different uh, manufacturing process. Don't get too caught up on it in a nutshell. The next question I normally get asked with tiles is, oh, can we get 600 by 600 tiles? And yeah, sure, you can. And most builders are gonna offer that. What you really need to think about is, bigger is not always better with tiles Think about your design and think about how those tiles are going to look on the floor. So if you've got a 900 or metre wide hallway in the entry, that's a 600 wide tile and then a piece of a tile, right? Whereas you might be able to fit, say, two 450 tiles if you've got a 900 uh, entryway. And certainly when you go into the hallways, usually towards the back of the home where minor bedrooms and things might be, those hallways get a bit narrower. I would say comfortably that... If you're on a 12 and a half metre wide block, you probably shouldn't be using 600 by 600 tiles. The home simply isn't gonna have the width to accommodate that and make it and and for it to look good. Uh, 15 metre wide designs, depending on how it's all working with hallways and things. Sure, you could probably do it. 17 metre, we're starting to sort of look at the size homes where 600 by 600 uh, doesn't look out of place. Timber laminate, now this product is to be perfectly frank with you, it's rubbish. I wouldn't touch it with a 10 foot pole. It's basically particle board with a photo printed onto it, essentially, okay? So it's not waterproof. Uh, If you get get it wet, it swells, it contracts, it can crack, it can lift, it's terrible. Um, There are better options available if you were to choose between, say, having to choose between timber laminate and tiles, which is a common decision you would have to make, choose the tiles, right? Otherwise, For not too much more, you can usually upgrade to a composite or vinyl plank, which is a product that just leaves the timber laminate for absolute dead. So just be aware of the difference between a timber laminate and a composite plank or a vinyl plank. Uh, And don't be afraid of the word vinyl either. It's not lino like we kind of knew it uh, growing up, you know, like it's come a long way. Uh, It's very, very hard wearing um, and the the more like composite Uh, sort of stuff. Um, Again, I'm trying not to mention uh, too many brand names or anything, but the composite ones that are more of a rigid plank, it's kind of more similar maybe to things like artificial decking that you'd find outside. It's just a brilliant hard-wearing product that presents beautifully. I actually have real timber floors uh, in my home and I probably wouldn't get them again. Uh, They are very, very fragile with day-to-day I've got dents and scratches all over mine. It's, it's pretty, pretty heartbreaking. I would take a composite every day of the week uh, if I was to go through the exercise of doing my floors again. Carpet, so there's varying levels of carpet. Now it is worth spending a little bit more to get upgraded carpet with most builders. The basic entry level carpets are gonna be you know fair i wouldn't say necessarily cheap but you can get a lot better for your money and you don't have to spend a great deal more it might be four or five hundred bucks and you'll get something that is a significant jump up it is a place where money is well spent the other thing with carpet as well is you've generally got in there's more types than this but to just make it really simple you've got cut pile and loop pile so cut pile is the one that looks like it's had a bit of a haircut loop pile is the one that uh looks a little bit more knitted Okay, now if you've got indoor pets of any kind, you've got to have cart pile, the loop pile one, they can get their claws under it and basically unpick it and you cannot fix it uh, once they do that. Appliances, so we're talking sort of like appliances in the kitchen now, for the most part, builders are only gonna include built-in appliances. So that's really the gas cooktop and the oven things like the, the fridge dishwasher and white goods like your washing machine and laundry, generally not included unless they're running some sort of uh, promo and I haven't really seen one of those running in a little while so for the most part built-in appliances one of the first things to look at is what width of those appliances so don't assume they're going to be the same as the display home are they going to be 600 millimeters wide are they going to be 900 millimeters wide the next thing to look at is the model numbers okay so don't just settle for brand name really make sure that you look at the model numbers and research those as well. Uh, I know that there are a lot of builders. uh, Again, it's in this price range that we're talking sort of 170, 180 to 300 grand that will have some European brand name appliances that they have in their home. And, you know, we've had those before as well. Just be mindful that with um, the models that are put in, they're going to be that brand's entry-level models. And look, in most cases, they're going to perform fine, but just be aware they're not going to be those super high-end Uh, European models that you might see on Pinterest or house. Insulation, so this one is coming up in conversation a little bit more, uh, especially with uh, the more recent changes to uh, how energy ratings are calculated and things like that. So obviously roof insulation uh, is a must and you're gonna have it in your roof, but there are different brands and different ratings of that insulation. So do a little bit of research into that. The other one to sort of tackle at the moment as well is also Uh, find out whether you're going to be getting cavity wall insulation. And again, there's various uh, types. There's some that pour in. There's uh, some that's more like a foil sheet that goes in the wall. But all of these things have a a really big acoustic and thermal impact. So sort of just ask those questions and make sure you know what you're getting. Roofing gutters and downpipes was the next section in the book. Now, uh, most people, they they seem to go with a color bond type roof, which is really probably, I say really probably, but it really would be the best product for our environment Uh, in Australia. There's no long-term maintenance or anything uh, like that for it. Um, It's just gonna stand the test of time and it is more secure because uh, it's screwed down effectively as well. So tiled roof is really easy to break into. You can get on the roof, move a tile, get into the roof. And you do have that long-term maintenance as well. Uh, Look, most builders are gonna have uh, different options available for both color bond and tiles. When you do see that corrugated tin type roof, pretty much all builders do use color bond. They basically have a monopoly uh, on the market because it is such a uh, good product. Uh, generally, your gutters are going to be color bond as well. Ask the question, but most of the time, that's what they would be using. And then downpipes, uh, find out whether they're using uh, color bond or what we call painted zinc Sometimes painted loom will be used uh, when a builder's trying to match a render color. So if you want your downpipes running down the front of your home, as an example, and you've chosen uh, a certain color, let's call it Osprey, for example, of the front of the home, Colorbond only comes in a quite limited range of colors. So they will use a painted loom pipe in that case, if you wanted to match the, the pipes to the front of the home. So just so they don't stick out too much this sort of section's drawing to a close a little bit now, but one thing I did want to touch on is what we call private labeling, which uh, a few builders are tending to do. Now, you're probably familiar with websites like Alibaba and the big sort of Amazon FBA craze that that goes on. You might've seen ads on YouTube for, you know, the latest young kid that's made millions of bucks selling stuff on Amazon. And this all comes down to private labeling, okay? So what that is, is you can jump on a website like Alibaba. So that's A-L-I-B-A-B-A.com. Just as an exercise, type in flick mixer tap. Okay. And what you will see is loads and loads of taps come up and you'll see they're all super cheap, right? Now you can brand that however you want, order a hundred, two hundred, a thousand and bring them into the country and and sell them as your own brand effectively. Now you could call that brand whatever you want. You could call it something European, like I, I mentioned before, right? Now that doesn't make the the product a bad product the problem is is that like I said before in say you know 10 years time if you've got an issue five years time or even two years time if it's it's out of warranty and you've got an issue and you can't get that same product again which is very very likely where's that going to leave you in terms of matching existing product in the home Uh, I don't know having to rip out toilets or taps from walls in showers as an example it can turn into a little bit of a uh, minefield so just be mindful of that one. Last but not least in the ingredients, and I did touch on this in the analogy, but that is the people. So when people are shopping for a home, they're always looking at that specification, the plan, price, inclusions. Remember that the best people in the industry, and that goes for everyone, pre-starters, site managers, the the trades, draftees, uh, estimators, uh, the schedulers, everyone. The best people cost the most money. And that's true for any industry. And I'm sure that uh, if you're listening on, it's no different to the industry that you work in. People that are better at their job are generally gonna cost more, okay? So as a general rule, the best builders are generally gonna attract the better staff and the better trades for that reason. And yes, you are gonna pay a premium for those people. So just expect that, but also expect a better result for that reason. That's uh, an absolute given. you know, I've, I've actually finished this little section with a, a, a quote that refers back to the food again. I'll just give you this one. But that is, uh, you can have all the fresh ingredients in the world, but without the right chefs, you still don't have a tasty dish. True that. So uh, the last little bit I just wanted to say before we speak to Jamie from Intelligent Home to get stuck into the tech space was the last page of this section in the book just says in really, really big letters, push, pull, open, open close, twist, touch. And what I'm trying to encourage you to do there is just remember, don't walk through display homes and think that you can't touch and and feel everything. It's a really important process to go through. You're not gonna buy a car without test driving it and the house is no different. You know, they're all going to look good. They're all done by professional interior designers and they're designed to be emotionally engaging. That's, That's what a display home is and they all photograph well. All of those products you need to touch and feel, turn them on and off if it's taps and get a good feel for the product. It's a a really, really critical one. Just remember that, um, you know, it's not just you that's gonna be touching and feeling it. All of your guests that come over, uh, they're gonna be touching and feeling the doors when they open them, the door handles, the taps, when they open a drawer, when they open a cupboard. You want all of that to feel nice. Like it seems really airy fairy to say something like that, but. Your home is something that you want to be really, really proud of. And anything that's tactile that you're touching and feeling is a really important part of that for all of your guests and for you as well. So anyway, uh, let's segue into the tech space. So this is part that um, I'm really passionate about. I was in uh, the tech space with building for a very long time, as I uh, mentioned at the the beginning of the building in Perth journey in the first episode uh, and at a very sort of high level on some very fancy homes and I'm very much a tech nerd, so I thought it would be kind of cool to get uh, one of the boys from Intelligent Home to sort of bring us up to speed where things are at as of today. And just look, keep in mind, if you're listening to this now and the and it's uh, 2022, then I'm sure that things have uh, changed since then. But what we're going to be doing is talking to Jamie, who is a systems integrator from Intelligent Home. We worked together for, ooh, I'd say six, seven years now, he's a fellow tech nerd as well and absolutely all across uh, home technology. So let's have a chat to Jamie. Jamie, are you there? Hi, Ryan, how are you? Yeah, good, mate, good. Uh, So let's talk uh, tech, it's obviously a space that I uh, am a big fan of, I am a super nerd and you are probably even more of a nerd, my friend. So tell us a bit about what Intelligent Home does. Yeah, sure.
1: So I guess as a cabling company and a technology company, we'll help out people building new homes with any sort of technology requirement they have. We always start with the basic infrastructure. Uh, we call it smart wiring, where we'll wire up the TV points and internet points around the home, working with people to minimize any black spots or weak spots for their Wi-Fi, uh, and then going through the things like home security with alarms and cameras through to, I guess, funky on-trend things like doorbell video intercoms that reach you on your mobile phone so you can know when that del- delivery driver in or, uh, you know, if you've missed any visitors.
0: Cool. So just on uh, just the smart wiring side of it quickly, I know that when I uh, did work at Intelligent Home uh, a few years back, uh, there used to be quite a big misconception Uh, with people coming in about what smart wiring was a lot of people tended to think that that was clap clap lights on lights off and it kind of was a little bit of a scary term for a lot of people can you just sort of elaborate on exactly what that is uh, for me as well
1: yeah you're 100% right smart wiring is one of those sort of ubiquitous terms in the industry that has a different meaning for every other person that you speak to but but for us smart wiring or, or structured cabling is just really a a more sensible approach to how we get the core infrastructure of the home wired. So when we think about the national broadband network and and the high speed internet that that's bringing in or even 5G internet coming into homes, we wanna make sure that we can get that sort of information uh, distributed or reticulated around the home just as efficiently as possible. So we do that by running um, data cabling to relevant locations, whether that's a, a study room, uh, whether that's a home theatre or a living space. But we we take all of that wiring from one central location in the home. So the, the terminology we use is the smart wire panel. Other people will call it a, a hub or something like that. might be in the garage or um, in a wardrobe. And that becomes, I guess, the central point. Everything from the outside world comes into that location and then from that location out into each room within the home that is required.
0: Cool. So just um, are there like sort of varying, I guess, levels of the smart wiring that uh, you guys offer uh, as well? Like how much, I guess, do, do people tend to spend on it? Does it vary a lot? Can you sort of give me a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, sure. So we've, we've got, I guess, a couple of different starting packages. Um, we've got, uh, I guess, our our most entry starting point, we call it a three-point pack. We wouldn't technically classify this as smart wiring because it doesn't include that hub panel, but it's a good starting position for a lot of people that are unsure of what their technology requirements will be. That starts from about one thousand one hundred dollars. Then we've got our smart wire data pack, which has the central hub and a few more TV and data points around the home. That's two thousand two hundred eighty-five uh, for a single story, a little bit more for a double story home. And then we've got our um, entertainment pack, which is the bigger brother, which includes all the wiring for things like Foxtel satellite dishes and dedicated home office environments. Um, and that'll start from about the three and a half thousand dollar mark. So we've got a package there to suit most people's requirements, but it's really about just getting that foundation right um, and, and I guess tailoring it up from there
0: sure so i guess what i'm sort of taking from that um is that i guess everyone's requirements are somewhat uh, different um and i guess that goes for everything in in building um but i guess the the main thing there is making sure that the the data cabling is in place for things like streaming services and that sort of thing and the types of things that uh, use a lot of data would that be fair yeah
1: 100 percent. so i guess just like building a home The design of the home has to be relevant to who's going to live there, how large is the family, what's the layout of the block. Uh, And so much the same with the wiring and infrastructure, we have to look at who's going to be using what around the home. If we've got a a family with a couple of young kids, we need to know that the Wi-Fi is absolutely rock solid so that nobody's climbing the walls when they move in and Netflix doesn't work properly. (laughs) Um, and, And I guess that leads on to one of the big pain points that we hear from people is that Inevitably, there's that room in the house where the Wi-Fi just doesn't work as well as it should or, or could. Um, and so getting cabling in place to allow for extended Wi-Fi hardware for improved coverage and even to reduce the strain on the Wi-Fi by taking really heavy usage items like smart TVs and Xboxes and PlayStations that just consume a lot of internet when they're up and running, if we can take them and plug them into the, start cabling it just reduces a bit of the pressure on the wi-fi and your ipad and things will inherently work a little bit better
0: yeah awesome so just i guess that is a really good segue into the the next sort of thing i wanted to ask and that was what are the types of things that are i guess exciting and new that are coming out aside from uh i guess smart tvs that uh connects either wired or wirelessly to the modern home oh look that's that's. It's an ever-changing environment, um, as you would remember from your time
1: here, but uh, definitely smart TVs, streaming services as a whole have really changed our thought process on what we can do in a living room. But everything from, from sound bars, from you know, the likes of Sonos and, and off with the ability to transform all the way into a full-blown surround sound system, um, there's ever-changing sort of technology available in the home theater space. So if there's a dedicated home theater or cinema room, we can talk to people about not just do you want, you know, five speakers in the room with a subwoofer, but do you want to hide the speakers behind your projector screen so you don't have to see all the boxes on the floor? Or can we look at putting some uh, acoustically rated movie posters on the wall to make the room itself sound a little bit better? Right through to things like doorbell video intercoms. That, as I mentioned before, when someone rings the doorbell, comes through to you on the mobile phone, and you can literally answer the doorbell from Bullside in Bali uh, and pretend yeah, right. you're home. What what a, what a great opportunity for security to be able to pretend that you're home and and ward off that potential invader who thought he was being clever by ringing the doorbell. First.
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's see, that's something new that's uh, certainly evolved since uh, my time there. Um, Is that uh, that something that's sort of, it sounds like it's expensive anyway, put it that way?
1: (laughs) Yeah, not at all. It's actually quite cost effective, Um, you know, and and like everything we do, we can do just the wiring now because often people building the homes, they might not be moving in until six months or, or 12 months after meeting with us. So sometimes we take approach of, should we just get some cabling into the front porch ready for a solution along those lines, knowing that hey, in six months' nice time, there might be a whole new cool model. Um, but, you know, for, for perspective, we have got you know, video intercom solutions that can come through to your phone starting at just a little over sort of $1,200 as a installed and handed over running product. And that's okay, no on. ongoing cost. Um, so it's yeah, a uh, one-time thing,
0: yeah. Yeah, nice. Um, one other sort of thing I wouldn't mind just having a very quick chat about Uh, was subdivision sites and the National Broadband Network. I know that that um, can be a little bit of a pain point for clients that might be uh, you know, if, even if they're building on say a real lot or they've split a block down the middle and they've bought, um, a vacant piece of land in, you know, it might be an infill suburb, like actually one of my clients in Morley, this actually, uh, did happen to, he, uh, went to move into his home and the subdivision hadn't been registered with NBN by the person that subdivided it. Probably a lengthy delay between it was. Him moving in and being able to get connected. Yeah, look, this absolutely.
1: is absolutely is a story that we're hearing all too often, unfortunately, and it it does fall back to um, a little bit of head-in-the-sand stuff from WAPC. So there's, there's a federal policy that dictates that anybody who subdivides a block is now classed as a developer. So if your mum and dad split their block in half and you buy the rear block, your mum and dad is a developer and they must, under this policy, make NBN aware of that development And the idea here is that NBN is given fair warning to upgrade their infrastructure in the street to be able to service more than one house at that address. So it kind of makes sense. We already have to do it with power and water and gas and all the other essential services. But unfortunately, WAPC hasn't yet classified communications, NBN, as um, that level of infrastructure requirement. They don't think it's that important. And so there's a lot of developers out there not being told. like, in, you know, in fairness to them, they're not being well enough informed that they need to do it. And the net result is somebody buys a Survey Strata block or a Axe block uh, and they move in and they innocently go to ring their internet company and they say, hey, turn me on. And they go, your address doesn't exist in our system. And that's when you've got to start that ball rolling of going through this registration process and let's face it, it's a government department and it's going to take time. So (laughs) it's definitely something that we want to be floating with people at the very early stages, knowing that on average it's three to six months at the moment between lodging the application and NBN actually being able to provide service.
0: Yeah, awesome. Thanks. You want to be in front of if you can. Yeah, thanks Thanks for that, mate. That is one important one I really did want to touch on because it has uh, been a little bit of a pain point for some clients uh, in the past, and it's not something that everyone is uh, completely across. I always try and advise people as best I I can on that, but I know in a a much broader sense as an industry, it's somewhere where um, things are falling short. Um, Look, I guess last of all, uh, let's talk a little bit about the sizzle with uh, the tech and where it's going, I guess I, I wanted to touch on things like, uh, you know, your, um, Alexa's and series and, um, you know, lighting automation and kind of where that space is kind of going. I know it's becoming a little bit more affordable and accessible for, you know, your average, uh, mum and dad, uh, building a home. Uh, so can you just sort of, uh, I guess, bring us up to speed on, on what the latest is in that space?
1: Yeah, you're 100% right. Ma- massively sort of exploding um, market segment at the moment. Uh, so many products readily available off the shelf from, from very simple, smart light bulbs that you can just swap out of your existing fittings. As you mentioned, voice control systems from Amazon, from Google, from Apple. Um, half the battle at the moment is trying to get all these different things to talk to each other. Um, and, you know, some companies are doing that a little bit better than others. Um, I guess the smartphone dream for a lot of people is the the one-stop shop. Can I use one app or one voice command or one remote control or one tablet to control my telly and my lights and my lock the front door and open and close the garage? And that's definitely an achievable thing. And the good news now is there's multiple ways of achieving that. So just depending on what your priorities are, you're looking at lighting automation, Lots of really cool, exciting things happening from brands like Control 4 and Quantify, um, even right through to Electro fit space. And the advantage with products like this is you're not swapping the globes in your roof. You're actually swapping the light switches. And so your smarts are a little bit more accessible, but it also means that if you've got down lights in the roof or suspended pendants, you're not having to swap those out for very specific fixtures. We can move the smarts into the switch or into the background to allow your existing fittings to be i guess smartened up a little bit um and and that extends like i say right through the world of music and and how do we get you know music out by the pool and are in ceiling speakers still the best option or could we look at something a little bit more involved with some speakers actually in the garden bed out by the pool or sure. is, is a portable solution there and and that's going to come back to that design around the family and the homeowner sort of scenario.
0: Just to quickly cut back to what you were talking about with being able to retrofit uh, things like the lighting automation retrospectively, Um, I remember this was a little bit of a a thing when I was in Intelligent Home that it's really critical that the light switches are actually wired correctly and it's important that people do ask their builders uh, about that wiring to the light switch. Can you just sort of um, touch on that very quickly?
1: Yeah, sure. So a the, the couple of big important factors there from a wiring point of view, uh, and this is an electrician thing, not an intelligent home thing, but to get what's called a neutral wire to each light switch location is mission critical. Every smart lighting product out there that has a smart switch, whether that's clips or Bluetooth light switches, Control 4, Quantify, whatever it is, they they need the neutral wire to make them run efficiently and effectively. Um Another really cool upgrade that you can, that would be recommended to look at is getting conduits added to each light switch location also. So this would allow us, us, an electrician, a contractor, to replace or, or modify the wiring that's running to the switch. So if you needed to add more light circuits or add simply a ceiling fan, a conduit to the light switch gives you a lot of flexibility, uh, especially with our brick construction over here that you, you wouldn't otherwise have. So neutral wires and conduits are your two really big things you wanna look at doing. They're, they're not gonna crush you to the earth as far as electrical upgrades go, but they give you a whole lot of flexibility down the track.
0: Yeah, unreal, mate. I think that look really probably hits it on the head um, for as far as things I can think of. Is there anything that else that you'd like to, like to add before we say catch you later?
1: The only other big thing that's really popular out there at the moment is security cameras, and a lot of people are weighing up their options at the moment about cameras that record to a hard drive within the home versus cameras that record directly to the cloud. There's some pros and cons on, on both, uh, but definitely a lot of people are thinking about their security, I would to say less in terms of an alarm, but certainly a lot more thought being given to the visual side of security. So when you're designing your home, just have a think about Would security cameras benefit me in being able to check out the perimeter of the home if I'm not there? Um, Or is an alarm system sufficient to ward off any potential sort of intruders um, as a bit of a deterrent factor?
0: Awesome. Uh, I think that about wraps it up, mate. Thanks so much uh, for your time. Really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to uh, talk to the listeners. Thanks very much. Absolutely, my pleasure. Cheers, Jamie. Take care. Okay, so that was episode three of Building in Perth. I hope you enjoyed going through all of those little ingredients that go into your home to make up the whole. It certainly wasn't all of the ingredients, but I tried to kind of cover off the main ones that people are normally talking about when they're going through this uh, building journey. Thanks again to Jamie from Intelligent Home for taking some time out of his day to have a chat to us. Uh, The tech space is obviously a pretty complex one and one that is constantly... Uh, evolving, So it's really great that we've got uh, people like Jamie and companies like Intelligent Home that have their finger on the pulse all the time when it comes to technology and how to implement that into, I guess, the modern home. Look, what we're gonna be going through next episode is a little bit about the preliminary works contract, So the basically the paperwork that you're going to sign with your builder to start the ball rolling. And then we're gonna go through a little bit about the pre-start process as well. Look, that about wraps it up for this episode. As always, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram as Build with Dezo. That's Build with D E Z O. That wraps up this one. I'll catch you next time. Building in Perth.
1: Everything you wish you knew in five informative episodes. Available on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts.